0: Welcome to module 23 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forsees. We're on our last subject for this course, Remedies. In the last module, we focused primarily on circumstances where a court on judicial review might decide not to proceed with a remedy. Recall that courts on judicial review preserve a discretion to award a remedy or not. In this module, we look at the remedies themselves, the prerogative writs and the so-called ordinary remedies. We then end with a discussion of separate proceedings, and I want to be clear on this, not judicial review, for money damages. So let's begin with prerogative writs. Historically, the English courts corrected unlawful administrative action through the use of prerogative writs. And these were called prerogative writs because they were originally issued by the Crown as part of its prerogative powers to control the exercise of power by its servants. Over time, the Crown assigned to the courts the power to issue these prerogative remedies. And this was a system of judicial review inherited from England by the various provinces. Now, I want to talk about the various prerogative remedies, but keep in mind the Federal Court and the Federal Courts Act has its own list of remedies, which we'll come back to towards the end of this module. So let's begin then with certiorari. Let's talk first about its scope. Traditionally, certiorari requires a statutory authority to submit the record of its proceedings to a superior court so that court can assess that record for so-called jurisdictional errors or what was called an error of law on the face of the record. An error of law on the face of the record would be discerned by the court or not based on the record of the proceedings before it, where there was an allegation of a so-called jurisdictional error, the court could supplement that record with supplemental evidence, such as affidavits from the parties. Now, traditionally, certiorari was confined to final or determinative decision-making by what were called judicial or quasi-judicial bodies. This was a fairly limited remedy in terms of the availability in relation to the universe of administrative decision-making. But in modern times, the remedy has become a general all-purpose remedy available against delegates for any of the grounds of judicial review that are currently in operation. And so that would include things like procedural fairness and all the other different bases for court to intervene we've been discussing in this course. Moreover, it is no longer restricted simply to that old category of judicial or quasi-judicial officials. And so it is an all-purpose remedy. What is the effect then of certiorari? Well, if the court were to conclude that there is a ground of review, the normal consequence of issuing a writ in the nature of certiorari, which is the old parlance, is the quashing of the decision, that is, the setting aside of the decision. Now, depending on the grounds for review, a delegate whose decision has been quashed may not be able to recommence the proceedings that were set aside. Imagine, for instance, a circumstance where at issue was the jurisdictional boundaries between two different delegates and a court concluded that Delegate A was not in fact operating within its jurisdictional sphere. In those circumstances, that conclusion is determinative. There is no basis for the delegate to re-engage its decision-making process. On the other hand, if the decision is quashed for procedural fairness violations, nothing really stops the delegate from recommencing the matter. At one time, it was thought that a delegate could only recommence the matter if the court made an order to that effect, and often courts will order that the matter be sent back for reconsideration. However, any such order sending the matter back is not, strictly speaking, necessary. An order from a court, in other words, is not necessary for the delegate to recommence a proceeding that's been quashed, again, assuming that there is still a jurisdictional basis for the reassertion of that competency. On the other hand, a court may quash a decision and then expressly refuse to send the matter back. And recall there was a discussion in the Vavilov case about the sorts of circumstances where a court might conclude that there's no useful purpose served by sending the matter back to the delegate for its reconsideration. Sometimes a court will make an order in the nature of certiorari to quash a decision, send the matter back, and then include language specifically indicating that the original delegate, that is the individual in question, not rehear the case, that it be sent to one of their colleagues. This is a sort of order you might expect if the ground for review in this case is a successful claim of bias. There's no point sending the matter back to be reheard by the same decision maker whose decision has been quashed because that decision maker is biased. Okay, next, the second remedy, prohibition. Now, the principal difference between certiorari and prohibition is really one of timing. Certiorari is aimed at decisions or orders that have already been made by the delegate. Prohibition, on the other hand, is a prerogative writ aimed at preventing a proceeding or a decision by the delegate. Prohibition is therefore available only if there's some step left for the decision-maker to take before the final outcome of their decision-making process, and which the court can now stop. Now, in practice, incidentally, if you're filing a notice of application for judicial review and you're seeking a remedy of prohibition, you would probably also do two things. The first thing is you would seek an interlocutory injunction, which we'll talk about in a moment, that would stop the decision-making process pending an outcome on the judicial review application on its merits. The other thing you'd probably want to do is also include a request for certiorari, because there's no guarantee that you'll be able to stop the decision-making process from unfolding while your judicial review application is underway. You may not get your interlocutory injunction, and so you want to make sure that you've also planned a remedy that's available to quash a decision that has culminated in the event that the decision-making process continues while your judicial review application is pending. Now, in its original guise, Prohibition, is only available to prevent the wrongful assumption by a decision maker of jurisdiction. And so this would include the commencement or continuation of proceedings that are contrary to the rules of procedural fairness or, to use the old parlance, natural justice. So, for example, proceedings tainted by bias. That might be the sort of circumstance where you're likely to seek a remedy in the nature of prohibition. Why persist with uh, some sort of decision-making process in circumstances where the decision-making is biased? You would want to stop it in its tracks and reset Prohibition is not available, though, to deal with expected or anticipated errors of law. So substantive errors that you think might be coming down the pipe, well, you got to wait and see in the modern era of curial deference what it is the decision maker ultimately concludes. There's a tendency on the part of the courts to want to allow delegates to make their decisions first, not to preempt them on the basis of some supposition about what it is they might do. And that's true even in the areas where there has traditionally not been much curial deference. And so, for example, procedural fairness cases. There, courts sometimes sit back and postpone an assessment of whether a reviewable error has occurred in order to have the benefit of perspectives on a developed record of a completed proceedings. Still... As I've suggested, at times courts will be concerned with saving parties and delegates from the inconvenience of a proceeding that is clearly tainted, say by bias, and will step in if the delegates' proceedings are fatally flawed. Next, an order in the nature of mandamus mandamus is a prerogative writ used to compel a public authority to perform its legal duties. Now, courts do slice up the precise requirements for a writ of mandamus a little bit differently, but essentially mandamus will not be granted unless there are four basic requirements that are met. First, the function to be performed by the delegate must be obligatory. It is a duty, in other words, not a choice, but a duty. Second, that that duty must be owed to the applicant themselves. It can't be some general obligation to a general class. It's got to be a duty that's owed to the applicant themselves. Third, the performance of the duty is due. There's no further step that's required before that duty will crystallize. And four, the delegate has refused a demand that it perform the duty. In other words, there has to be a demand and a de facto refusal. Now, mandamus is not restricted to enforcing substantive entitlements, it can also be used to compel observance of procedural rights, whether those rights are set out in statute or common law, and mandamus is most often sought in conjunction with certiorari, and so the applicant is seeking both to quash a decision and then direct that it be reconsidered in accordance with a duty pursuant to the order and the nature of mandamus. However, technically you don't need to include a reference to certiorari when seeking mandamus. When one succeeds in pleading mandamus, the court instructs the delegate to act in accordance with its public duty as per its obligations. The implication being that any previous decision that failed to comply with this duty is quashed. Now, in terms of discretionary powers, mandamus is generally not available to compel the outcome of an exercise of discretionary power one way or another. Remember, discretionary power is the power to make a choice, and mandamus doesn't allow you to dictate that choice to the delegate if that delegate remains free to make that choice. After all, the outcome is entirely in the hands of the delegate, and courts do not want to step into the shoes of the delegate using the vessel of mandamus. However, you can seek an order in the nature of mandamus obliging the delegate to actually exercise its discretion in accordance with the law. And so if you have a circumstance where the delegate is sitting on their hands, they have a choice to be made and they simply won't make it, that's the area where it would be appropriate to seek mandamus to compel them to make that choice to exercise their discretion Also, to be clear, mandamus can compel an outcome in some circumstances if the only reason for failing to exercise discretion is an improper one. Well, mandamus in that circumstance would effectively compel the opposite outcome. Next, habeas corpus. This is an ancient remedy often associated with uh, criminal law, but it does have a role on occasion in administrative law. It's an historic instrument that was used as a potential source for release of those detained unlawfully. Now, clearly, habeas corpus is entrenched in the Charter. Section 9 talks about how everyone has a right not to be arbitrarily detained or imprisoned, Section 10C says that everyone has a right on arrest or detention to have the validity of the detention determined by way of habeas corpus and to be released if the detention is not lawful. And so habeas corpus, this ancient common law writ, has a constitutional imprimatur now in modern Canadian law. But it has utility even in administrative law in a handful of circumstances where a person might be detained for administrative reasons. So, for example, the custody of children by child welfare authorities or of uh, mentally ill persons or parolees or refugee applicants. These are all persons who may be subject to detention on administrative law grounds. And so in those circumstances, there may be an interest in bringing an application for habeas corpus as part of an administrative proceeding. Now, the application for habeas corpus can only be brought on behalf of a person who is actually detained or otherwise in custody. And if sought by itself, a writ in the nature of habeas corpus would issue only if there's some patent flaw on the face of the detention order. But in practice, you can combine habeas corpus and certiorari together into something called a prayer for certiorari in aid of habeas corpus. And this allows the court to go beyond the face of the detention order and to review the fuller record, admit affidavit evidence, question the facts uh, on which the detention is said to be based, and review for violations of procedural entitlements, etc., Procedurally, though, just to be clear here, the federal court does not have jurisdiction over habeas corpus except for Canadian forces personnel overseas. So you're talking here in practice about provincial proceedings, and in Ontario, there's a separate habeas corpus act, which governs the proceedings for a writ of habeas corpus. And it provides for an application to be made to a judge of the Superior Court of Justice. And the judge is obliged to issue the writ of habeas corpus if satisfied that the complaint is made out on reasonable and probable grounds. And once the writ is issued, that's an order for the government to turn up in court and show why it is that the detention has some legal basis. Now, habeas corpus proceedings in administrative contexts are relatively uncommon now, in large measure because statutory regimes that allow for detention usually have their own proceedings associated with challenging that detention, and so there's a propensity to use those statutory frameworks rather than the old common law prerogative writs. So it seems unlikely that for most administrative law lawyers, they would encounter habeas corpus all that often. Even more obscure is our next and last prerogative writ, the so-called quo warranto. This is an old prerogative remedy with a very narrow focus. It allows the applicant to challenge a person's entitlement to public office, which the delegate purports to hold. And what's a public office? Well, in this context, it means any public office created under the royal prerogative or by statute. And so it does not include membership in the legislatures or in parliament. And think uh, of reasons why, not least parliamentary privilege, one of those collateral features of parliamentary supremacy, which we talked about near the beginning of this course, parliamentary privilege provides that it's for the legislature or parliament, as the case may be, to determine the membership of those who sit in it. Now, unless there's a special statutory scheme to deal with the matter, the purpose of quo warranto is really to remove from that executive public office a so called usurper, that is, someone who lacks the qualifications, typically qualifications set out by statute, to hold that particular office. Quo warranto is not available to challenge the conduct of that person above and beyond this idea of usurpation. Well, who gets challenged using a writ of quo warranto? Very few people, in part because there are usually clear statutory rules about who gets to hold offices, and those statutory rules generally negate the need to go through some separate proceedings using the writ of quo warranto. There are, however, a handful of circumstances where there has been use of the writ in the last 30 or so years, and so municipal councillors, there have been circumstances where quo warranto has challenged the office holding by municipal councillors, and for members of Indian band councils under the Indian Act, there has been use of quo waronto. But generally speaking, quo is pretty much obsolete. I usually jest with my students that if you find a quo case, please send it to me. Over the decades, there have been a handful of instances where students have done so. It is very uncommon. Okay, so let's shift gears away from prerogative writs to the so-called ordinary remedies. And these were remedies that grew up separately in the private law area rather than being creatures of prerogative and creatures of the public law side of the legal house. And they do, to some extent, especially with injunctions, overlap with things like prohibitions That's simply a product of history, not of logic. And so, yes, there is overlap, but the overlap stems from their different historical origins. So, the first ordinary remedy I'll talk about is something called a declaration. And so, you may have a dispute as to the meaning of a provision in a statute or some other legal document. There, the court may interpret the provision and declare its true legal meaning. And so, doing a court may end up defining the scope of the powers of a delegate or the legal rights of a party. So the purpose of requesting a declaration is really to clarify the law on a particular point. They are not declarations that are issued on matters of morality or wisdom or policy or choices made by courts with an eye to anything other than the law. Court will only make declarations on questions of law. So what then are the implications of a declaration if one were to seek it and to receive it? Well, a declaration of the court does not order anyone to do anything or to refrain from doing anything. It is not an order that is enforced. However, in practical reality, a declaration of the court is traditionally respected. Why? Because if the court declares the law is X and the delegate proceeds on the basis that the law is Y, it's very easy to turn around subsequently and go back to the court and say, well, now I'm coming for something binding in terms of an order. In many jurisdictions, a declaration is obtained through a civil proceeding called an action, which you would have studied in your course on civil procedure. But within the Federal Courts Act, it is also a remedy available on application for judicial review. In terms of timing, courts typically will prefer to see the delegate's decision and its interpretation of the disputed provision together with any reasons before they turn their mind to whether they will issue a declaration. So again, a declaration is like all the other remedies with the exception of injunctions and prohibitions. It is usually sought after a decision has been rendered. One last point on declarations, it's not an academic exercise. The court will decline a declaration if there's no one present in court with a true interest in presenting the opposing view to that of the applicant. And so uh, the declaration is not supposed to be uh, some sort of reference case that is sought from the court in order to inform some decision making. References are available incidentally before the Supreme Court and in fact also before the federal court, but are governed by different statutory provisions that are not truly part of administrative law slash applications for judicial review. Likewise, a declaration will be refused if it would have no practical or real effect. Again, it's not something that implicates courts in an academic exercise. Our last remedy is injunctions. Like declarations, injunctions have their origin in private law. These were equitable remedies whose historical purpose was to prevent unlawful or unauthorized interference with property rights. Eventually, injunctions came to be used to restrain also public statutory authorities from interfering with private rights. However, for the longest time, restrictions existed on its application to public authorities. Generally speaking, the rule was that the Crown could not be enjoined, and this was part of something called Crown immunity. Now, that strict view of Crown immunity has long since evaporated, and so injunctions are part of the arsenal of remedies available in administrative law proceedings now injunctions can really be classified in two ways first by their effect and secondly by their duration in terms of effect there are preventive injunctions that is an injunction that stops some sort of act for example stops the government from deporting someone and there are also Mandatory injunctions, that is an injunction that mandates something that requires positive steps be taken to remedy past wrongs. So maybe perhaps that the government has to reopen a school that it wrongfully closed as a matter of administrative law. Now mandatory injunctions are rare. Courts are reluctant to impose them and prefer to use mandamus when they require positive steps to be taken. Still, they they do occur from time to time. The second way of classifying an injunction is by duration and so there are permanent injunctions these are permanent orders and these are much less common than interlocutory injunctions interlocutory injunctions as the term suggests is a temporary injunction these persist until the substance of a dispute before the court is resolved and they're designed to ensure that delays at court don't render the matter moot because of the intervening period so There might be, if the court were not to enjoin the conduct of a delegate, a step taken by that delegate that has the effect of making whatever dispute has come before the court entirely irrelevant. The person has been deported, and so there is no purpose any longer served in challenging the capacity of the delegate to, in fact, deport that person. Now, the test for an interlocutory injunction really hinges on three prongs. And so the Supreme Court has suggested that there has to be a serious issue to be tried, sometimes called a prima facie case. In other words, the applicant has to show that their case on the merits is neither vexatious nor frivolous and there's substance to it. Second, the applicant has to establish that they would suffer irreparable harm if their application for an interlocutory injunction were refused. And so imagine going back to our hypothetical, if you refuse my injunction and I'm deported and it turns out that in fact I am a bona fide refugee and I do suffer some sort of harm upon return to my country of origin, well that's the sort of injury that truly is irreparable. And then last, in terms of the three prongs, an assessment must be made as to who would be most inconvenienced by the imposition of the interlocutory injunction, the state on the one hand versus the applicant. And so coming back to our refugee deportation context, if you remove the claimant and they turn out to be a refugee, well, that's a very serious consequence stemming from the failure to issue the interlocutory injunction. But if you're the state, if you're Canada, and you are subject to an interlocutory injunction, there's no real pernicious consequence to holding off on the deportation until the merits of the case on judicial review are, in fact, adjudicated. Okay, so those are our remedies in a nutshell. I admit, very much in a nutshell. But let's just talk before we conclude on remedies on judicial review about the Federal Courts Act. And I have mentioned this before in our separate module on the Federal Courts Act and the Federal Courts Section 18.1 sub 3 of the Federal Courts Act enumerates the powers that the federal courts have to order a federal board commission or other tribunal. And recall that's very broadly defined as any entity exercising power under the royal prerogative or under a statute, so any person or entity to do any act or thing that it has unlawfully failed or has refused to do or has unreasonably delayed in doing. And so that first provision, which is 18.1 sub 3 sub A, is really the equivalent of mandamus. And then also in B, to declare invalid or unlawful or quash or set aside or set aside and refer back for determination in accordance with the directions of the court, or to prohibit or restrain a decision order act proceeding of a federal board commission or other tribunal. And so in plain language, they amplify the sorts of remedies that are available under either the prerogative writs or under the ordinary remedies. The one exception, as I mentioned, was habeas corpus, which is restricted only to Canadian forces personnel serving outside of Canada who are detained in the course of that expeditionary mission. Now the change in terminology in 18.1 sub 3 doesn't necessarily change the sorts of tests that the federal court might apply. So for example the federal court would apply the test for mandamus drawn from the common law and it would look to those variables which I enumerated in our discussion in this module and deciding whether to give that relief And just like for every other court on judicial review, whether to accord a remedy or not is an exercise of discretion by the federal courts. And so again, those sorts of prudential considerations, which I enumerated in our prior module, are important at the federal court as they would be at the provincial superior courts hearing judicial review cases. So that then leaves us with one final issue in this module on remedies, and in fact, our last issue for this course, and that is the question of money damages. Now, as I have said repeatedly near the beginning of this class, monetary damages are not available on judicial review. Damages are not a remedy at common law, nor are they a remedy under the Federal Courts Act for judicial review of administrative action. That's not to say that administrative law remedies could never result in a monetary award of some sort. So imagine, for example, that at issue in some administrative proceedings is whether one should get a tax refund, and one wins that proceeding. In that context, obviously, money might come back to you. And so there, there's a monetary aspect. But that's very different from compensation for damages that are caused by a delegate's wrongdoing. That sort of compensation for damages caused by a delegate's wrongdoing has to arise from a separate proceeding beyond judicial review, a proceeding in an action for one of those classic private law causes, a tort, a breach of contract, etc. Well, the classic example of this is, in fact, the case we began this course with, Ron versus Duplessis, which I used to illustrate the idea of an excessive assertion of jurisdiction in that case by the Premier of Quebec. Ron Corelli versus Duplessis was actually a tort, a tort of misfeasance of public power, a concept I'll come back to in a moment. It was not an administrative law proceedings per se. It raised administrative law issues, yes, but it was an action for damages. Now, the tort for misfeasance of power remains a recognized tort in Canadian law. Remember, it's a tort. It is not administrative law per se. The best known case recently involving the tort of misfeasance of public power is a case called Ohavji Estate versus Woodhouse, which involved the fatal shooting of Mr. Ohavji by police officers and then a subsequent investigation by the Special Investigations Unit. At issue before the Supreme Court was whether there was such a thing as a tort of misfeasance of public office, and the Supreme Court concluded there was and outlined the elements, which I'll briefly repeat here in the back end of this module, and so to constitute a tort of misfeasance of public office, otherwise known as an abuse of power, this is an intentional tort that is constituted by, first, deliberate unlawful conduct in the exercise of public functions, and second, awareness by the delegate that that conduct is unlawful and likely to injure the plaintiff. If the plaintiff proves that the defendant would have been aware that their unlawful conduct would harm the plaintiff, this creates a nexus between the parties and allows the lawsuit in tort. And more than that, the plaintiff has to show that the deliberate unlawful conduct with that requisite knowledge was the cause of the injuries that they're now complaining about. In Odhavji, the Supreme Court said that the underlying purpose of the tort is to protect each citizen's reasonable expectation that a public officer will not intentionally injure a member of the public through deliberate and unlawful conduct in the exercise of public functions. So it is possible to have conduct by a delegate that both triggers administrative law remedies, and you could judicially review the conduct of that public officers, but also separately through a tort proceedings give rise to the prospect of compensation for the tort of misfeasance of public power. And there's no requirement, as the federal court believed there once was, that one proceed with judicial review and establish the administrative law error before one sues in tort. There's no requirement, in other words, that you exhaust your administrative law course of action before you proceed with your civil cause of action. And so that ends our discussion of remedies. That also ends our video modules on administrative law in Canada. For those registered in my course, you will have learned by this point that these video modules are simply the passive content for a course designed to broaden your skill set. In terms of addressing administrative law issues. I wish you well in your continued studies in this and other areas of the law. Remember always the public law mantra, show me the power, and this ends module 23.